Beloved, let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, today we start part two of our four-week sermon series on everyone's favorite sermon topic, stewardship. I know, I know, many of you hear that word and instinctively place a protective hand over your wallet, which I get because most of the time when the church talks about stewardship, we are almost exclusively talking about money. And most people I know don't like, talki- talk, don't like talking about money at home, let alone at church. But as I said last week, stewardship isn't just some annual event, it is a way of life. Stewardship is how we participate in God's holy work in creation and community by using what we have, where we have it, when we have it. To put it another way, stewardship is an invitation wrapped in a discipline. But it's not always easy to see it that way, especially when it comes to giving up our stuff or our money or our belongings. After all, we live in a world fueled by mottos like what's yours is yours and what's mine is mine, or bigger is better, or to the victor go the spoils. An economy of scarcity built on the notion that there isn't enough for all of us, so you have to take and keep what is yours. Whether it's our time or our talents, our treasure, or even our traditions, we have been trained to hold on tight to what we have in order to survive, in order to feel secure. Now these limited mindsets are not modern inventions, of course. Just look at the Israelites in the wilderness. Here we have a people who have just been freed from brutal slavery by the Most High God. But after a few weeks of not knowing where they were going, what they were going to eat, and what the future held for them, they began to long for the days of their enslavement. Because at least then, they knew what the day would bring. At least then, they had the illusion of control. But as we recall last week, God did not bring God's people to the wilderness to die of hunger but rather to establish for them a new way of being, a new reality, a new sense of belonging. The catch, they had to let go of their old way of being, their old realities, their old sense of belonging. Instead of hoarding, they could only take what they needed for that day. Instead of overworking, they were to rest every seventh day. And instead of worrying about where they were going, they had to remember how far they had come and who got them there. Last week, we pondered the question, to whom do we belong? And we, my friends, we belong to God. Today, we ponder the question, so what belongs to us? Helping us answer this question are two short passages from the gospel according to Matthew. Thanks for that laugh, James, I appreciated it. All right, this first passage is from Matthew chapter four when Jesus calls his first disciples. 
As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Our second passage is from Matthew chapter 19, Jesus and the rich young man. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life or to participate in the kingdom of God? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, also you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go, sell your possessions, and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Friends, the word of the Lord. Told you they were short. Now on the surface, these two passages couldn't seem more different. In the first passage, Jesus is at the start of his ministry, and in the second, he is near the end. In the first, Jesus approaches a group of fishermen, members of the poor middle class. And in the second, Jesus is approached by a man defined by his great power and wealth. One involves the very disciple upon who the church will be built, the other a person we never hear of again. And yet, as different as these passages are, as different as the characters are, they both affirm the same hard truth. There is a cost to discipleship. There is a price to following Jesus. Now, if you're anything like me, the second you hear that, your immediate follow-up question is, so what exactly is the cost? What amount is the price? Well, let's see what our passages have to say. In Matthew 3, Peter, Andrew, James, and John are asked to drop everything, leave their jobs and their families to go and follow Jesus. And they do it immediately. But while the text doesn't show us any angst or deliberation around making this decision, that doesn't mean it was an easy choice to make. While being a fisherman wasn't a particularly lucrative business, it was a family one, which meant the ones who had to pay the price of the disciples' decision were the family they left behind. As the scriptures say, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. 
Now, looking at this text, we might be tempted to conclude that the cost of discipleship is a one-time event that includes dropping everything and walking away from your current life, no questions asked. Not necessarily. As we are well aware, this instance of unmitigated obedience was not the disciples' standard response. Time and time again, they question and doubt Jesus. Time and time again, they have to choose whether or not they want to follow him. And oftentimes, they make the wrong choice which means the cost of discipleship isn't a one-time deal. No, it is a lifelong journey full of opportunities to be faithful. Then in Matthew 19, Jesus makes a similar offer to a rich young man. But this time, we actually get to see the man struggle. We see him calculate the cost of what Jesus is asking and ultimately decide it is a price too high for him to pay. As the scriptures say, when the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Now, in looking at this text, we might be tempted to conclude that the cost of discipleship is a monetary one, that you can't be rich and follow Jesus. Again, not necessarily. As we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus interacts with people from a diversity of backgrounds in a variety of situations, each one with a gift to offer and each one with a treasure to let go. Whether it is their money or their pride, a lifestyle or a mindset, Jesus calls on his disciples not to simply give up the things they own, but the things that own them which means the cost of discipleship may not have a dollar amount, but it is the thing we value the most. In other words, it's our treasure. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, we, the disciple, must receive our portion from God every day. If we store it up as a permanent possession, we spoil not only the gift, but ourselves as well. For where our treasure is, there is our trust, our security, our consolation, our God. And our treasure may, of course, be small and inconspicuous, but its size is immaterial. It all depends on the heart, on ourselves. And if we ask how we are to know where our hearts are, well, the answer is just as simple. Everything which hinders us from loving God above all things, that is our treasure and the place where our heart is. In the case of the rich young man, his treasure turned out to be his belongings, his stuff, his money. There it is again, that nasty word, money. What's that saying? There are three things you should never discuss in polite company. Politics, religion, and money. It's too bad Jesus never got that memo. Or any of the other biblical writers for that matter. You see, it doesn't matter if you're in the New Testament or the Old Testament. The topic of money comes up over and over and over again. Why? Because in the same way that stewardship is about just more than, more, more than money, well, guess what? Money is about more than just money. 
It doesn't matter when or where we live, if we are in the wilderness or the promised land, money has the power to make us feel secure and successful, even saved. Money has the power to shape who we are, how we live, and even who and how we love. In that regard, it's not money itself that, it's, that is the issue for us or the rich young man, but it's the ways that we treasure it, hoard it, even idolize it. The irony is, of course, for the rich young man is that everything he hopes for, everything he hopes his money will buy, the answer to all of his questions is right there, sitting right in front of him. All he has to do is say yes. Much to his surprise and dismay, there are no good deeds he has to perform or even payments he has to make. So then what do we do? What do we make of this whole sell everything, give away all of your money part? How is that not a payment? How is that not the price? Well, as Bonhoeffer noted, the payment is the man's very life. And the price is his heart. Giving away his treasure, that was preparation. Something I think the rich man understood based upon his response of grief. He knows that what Jesus is saying is true. He knows he can't serve two competing masters. He knows he can't belong to his stuff and belong to Jesus. And he knows in choosing one, he has to release the other. Not an easy choice to make. Some might even say it's an impossible one. That is if you are only counting the costs. Yes, in each of these passages, Jesus makes a very big ask of his would-be disciples. Let it all go. Every last thing. That isn't the whole story. Because in each of these passages, Jesus also makes a very big invitation. Come and follow me. Come and do God's work with me. Come and find life with me. Will it be easy? No. Will it be comfortable? Definitely not. Will it be good? Absolutely. As Bonhoeffer wrote, and if we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to him, for only he knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us follow him, knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. For discipleship means joy. Now, normally this is a part of the sermon where I would give you an example of what discipleship looks like. I would name all the treasures that you need to release and the decisions of and partings to be demanded. But as Bonhoeffer and the rich young man were well aware, only Jesus has that answer for you today. So instead of closing with a story about the cost, I am going to close with a story about the joy. See, I can bring books up here too. (laughs) This is a story about a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. 
Here are a few facts about Eustace. His parents called him Eustace Clarence. His masters called him Scrub. We don't know what his friends called him because he had none. He liked bossing and bullying and cards with dead beetles on them. And he disliked his cousins, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Eustace's main focus, concern, care, and priority in his life was singular. It was himself. As C.S. Lewis's story goes, Eustace finds himself on a fantastic voyage aboard a magical ship known as the Dawn Treader. His journey brings him to an island where Eustace discovers a dragon's lair full of treasure. While making plans to steal it, Eustace finds a priceless arm ring full of diamonds and places it on his wrist and falls asleep. His sleep is interrupted by a pain in his arm right where he placed that bracelet. As he came to, he sees that there's a dragon's claw to his right and his left, and he realizes he's surrounded by two dragons that are mimicking his every move. That is until he figured out there were no dragons with him. As C.S. Lewis writes, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, Eustace had become a dragon himself. At first, Eustace feels actually a sense of relief at being the biggest and baddest creature around. But that feeling is quickly replaced by a deep, loneliness and sadness and, yes, grief. And yet it is in this place of humility that Eustace realizes not only that he has the capacity to care for others, but that others care for him. In the midst of his inner transformation, Eustace is visited by a huge lion by Aslan. At Aslan's command, Eustace begins to peel away the scales of his dragon skin to prepare himself for a swim in the lake. The deeper he scratched, the more that came off like a banana. Over and over again, he scratched and peeled, trying to get off this dragon skill. But each time he came to the water, he realized that he was still a dragon. No matter how hard he tried or what he did, there was another layer to peel until Aslan intervened. Tearing into Eustace's skin so deep, Eustace thought he had gone right into his heart. The most painful experience of his life and the most satisfying. Thick layers of dragon skin peeled away to free Eustace into being a boy. The story ends with the following disclaimer. And I'm actually just going to read it from my page because I'm not like Tom and I'm not ready with it. The story ends with the following disclaimer. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from, time, that, from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice, for the cure had begun. Friends, may the same be true for all of us who seek to follow Christ.
those of us who want to be complete, who desire abundant life. But as always, we have a part to play. God invites us to participate. So as promised, here is your homework assignment for the week. What belongs to you? What do you value? What do you treasure? If the cost of discipleship is our very lives and the price is our very hearts, what treasures are keeping you from loving more concretely, serving more generously, and pursuing God's restoring justice? After the service, worship and our arts committee invite you to participate in a responsive art activity project installation embodying this very desire. You can see it, the pieces of it unfold on the communion table before you. We'll be doing that right out here in the pathway after worship. But as the worship team comes forward to play our reflection, I invite you to think about and consider what those things might be.